Welcome to the Brain Trust Driving Change Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Bloomfield. Whether you're a leader, a coach, a salesperson, or even a parent, this podcast focuses on how to leverage the science of decision-making to help you become a more impactful communicator and a driving force for change. Welcome back to the Driving Change Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Bloomfield, and today is a day that I have had on the calendar for, if not if not m- multiple weeks, definitely months uh, here, that uh, our guest today, Dr. Rick Rigsby, uh, most of you are probably familiar with him uh, from his over 300 million viewed video, The Lessons of a Third Grade Dropout. But today, we're going to dive a little bit deeper and unpack some of of Rick's story that maybe you didn't get from that amazing video. Uh, you know, Rick has degree after degree after degree. He's a very educated man. Um, but here's what I'll tell you. His education pales in comparison to his wisdom. And, and that's what we're here for. Um, he's an award-winning journalist. He, he's, let me tell you, gang, this guy's like the Forrest Gump of, of, of speakers. <laughs> he has lived a life. He's lived like 17 lives in one life. And um, I, I cannot wait for you guys uh, to hear more from Rick today. He's written two great books. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, Afraid to Hope today. He's also written Lessons from a Third Grade Dropout, just launched his new podcast, How You Living. So I want you to check that out after this as well. So Rick, welcome to the show. Oh, Jeff, I'm so honored to be here. I wish I had a box of chocolates that I could <laughs> <laughs> That was great. Forrest Gump. <laughs> Well, we, uh, like I said, we're big fans of yours around here inside Brain Trust, and our and our clients are as well because we we make sure everyone gets introduced to you at some point or another in their relationship with us because of the value that you, that you bring. Um, you know, we always start our podcast guest off with a single question, and and you can make it as short or long as you want, but it really comes down to tell us your why. What's your why? Well, first of all, I, I'm so honored to be with you. I had a chance to familiarize myself with you and the podcast, and I, I am just so blessed to, to see what you are doing and the difference that you're making. Here's the bottom line why. I got to a point in my life where I either decided I'm going to quit or I'm going to get up and keep going. And I defined quitting as simply going through the motions, what I call impressionistic living, I made a choice with uh, a help from a lot of wisdom from that third grade dropout to stand and to keep going. I call that impact. I am placed upon this earth for one reason. That is to encourage people to be better, to make an impact. That's my why. That's why I'm on this earth. It wasn't to be a television reporter. It wasn't to be uh, all the other titles that are associated with my name. I'm on this earth for one reason, to uplift, to encourage, to challenge, to do anything I can to make another person's life better, or at least to introduce the notion of that possibility. That's the why for me. Well, there's no pressure associated with that purpose. I mean, my goodness, right? Why don't you go do something useful in the world, Rick? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So we, you know, you and I had a little bit of chance to get to know one another. And one of the things that I've admired about you from a distance, and we talked about this a little bit in the pre-show is, is storytelling. And, and, And you, you have been a natural storyteller, I'm sure, but it's also, it's not just a gift, right? It's a skill. Uh, tell us what you've learned about storytelling, maybe from a young age all the way to today and, and why you feel like 
it's such a powerful mode of communication. You know, I believe that we're storytelling uh, people who live in a in a storytelling world. I believe that information that is disseminated often comes on two levels. One is a content level. The other is a relational level. Content is good for facts, but relational level communication moves you. I love what John Maxwell said on one occasion, everybody can communicate, but very few people can connect. You will connect less with facts, far more with telling a story, as your research indicates. That was just natural for me. I, I remember growing up, we didn't need Flip Wilson, what I'm dating myself. We, did, we didn't need uh, Carol, the Carol Burnett show. We didn't need uh, all the entertainers in the 60s and the 70s to make us laugh. I mean, it was just at the dinner table, uh, tell, listening to stories, telling stories. And I didn't realize it at the time, but I was developing timing. I was developing rhythm. I was developing a cadence. You'd go to church. And, and you know, I don't remember one single sermon. <laughs> Not one. But, oh, I remember the feeling that I felt, the emotion that moved me. I, I, I remember walking out feeling like I was uplifted and that I was just in the clouds because the black pastors in the black church might not have had, all of them, the greatest education, might not have been able to exegete the passage the way that others may have, but they knew how to connect with their audience. It wasn't until my second year in my PhD program that I realized that great speakers, uh, they, they don't talk at people, they don't talk, they don't talk around people, they talk with people. And they, they, they really understand in an intuitive way where the audience is and what it, what it takes to move them to the next level. My point is, I was around storytelling 24-7, and I really think that some of it wore off. I mean, I look at my speeches now, and I look at my presentations, even, even something like being on your show, and it is my, it's not just a default. It, it, is my, it is the essence of who I am, literally, to tell a story. Yeah, and I think and all of those who are listening who know our work know that we even had Dr. Tony Jack on a, a couple of months ago, and he did all the brain research on this recently, that we have an analytical network and an empathic emotional network, and you can't connect with them at the same time. He found in his work, you literally can't activate them both at the same time, but it's the empathic emotional network that activates change and decision-making, and it's the analytical network that validates it. And so when you tell a story, you actually bypass the analytical, skeptical, judgmental part of a person's brain, and you connect directly with their own experiences and memories and familiarity and emotion. And, and that's what really, to your point, moves people. And I still think that I don't care if you're an introvert or an extrovert. <clears throat> you know, people know my papa at this point. He wasn't an extrovert. He was an introvert, but he was an amazing storyteller. Yeah. Uh, you don't have to be a big extrovert. I think you and I are probably extroverts, right? But you don't have to be to be a great storyteller, do you? No, you, you absolutely don't. Some of the most charismatic people I know uh, have low set on their, on their volume, you know. And, and to get back to your point with regard to the research, I, I would remember uh, when I was a professor, I, had this, I taught this class called the Rhetoric of the Civil Rights Movement, Social Movements. And I, let's just say, for example, I wanted them to remember 1964. I wanted them to remember that for the Public Accommodations Act of 64 and for Goodman, Cheney, and Schwerner. 
Now, keep in mind, these are 18 to 22-year-olds, right? Uh, I'm trying to wake them up from the dead. They, 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 they're asleep and they're hungover. <laughs> you talk about great preparation. All right. And so I, I, would, I, would, I learned through listening to people tell stories. The thing that moved me was, was a moment of nostalgia where I could reminisce and also new knowledge. And so I would say 1964, uh, The Temptations was this group and they couldn't come up with this song. And, and finally, Smokey Robinson wrote them a song about you got a, a smile so bright and I pretend like I don't remember the words and they're trying to come up with the words. And then also in 1964, I remember watching the Ed Sullivan show when he announced that this this group, these four lads from Liverpool would be on. And I'm pretending like I don't know. And I'm saying now, class, what was that group? And you'd hear everything from the Turtles to New Kids on the Block. And of course, it was the Beatles. All that was telling a story that included an opportunity for the students to reminisce and perhaps discover something on their own. They never forgot Goodman, Cheney, and Schwerner, 1964. They never forgot the Civil Rights Act of 1964, otherwise known as the Public Accommodations Act. Now, if I would have just gone textbook and talked about those facts, I highly doubt that students from 20 years ago would still text an email and say, I remember 1964. Oh, that's beautiful. You keep it up and we might just have to bring you in as a facilitator of, <laughs> to our clients because you're, you're, you're preaching the gospel of brain trust right now. Come on. Um, so, so you talk a little bit, I'm going to, I'm going to peel back into some of your early days and, and you were going through you're you're this amazing, by the way, I, I need to go find some clips of you as a, as a journalist, an on-air journalist. No, Come on now. Let's, let's go Come get, on. let's go get some of those. I had, a, I had an Afro so big I couldn't get in a Volkswagen. <laughs> so are you trying to say some of that footage wouldn't, wouldn't hit the world 300 million views today? <laughs> Oh, I don't think so, brother. But you have a, a concept that you talked about in one of your stories back, I think it was back when you were, when you were a journalist, that you would try to build more of an image yeah. um, versus really thinking about impact. T tell us a little bit about that time period. You know, I, I strayed into the wilderness uh, after leaving the nest at home. I grew up with godly parents that practiced common sense. And then I went to college and just, you know, went went through that that period that a lot of us go through in college. And just so fortunate to land an internship at a local CBS shop in Northern California, in Chico, California, market size 139. So don't, you know, it wasn't like being in New York City. But you got to do everything at this non-union shop. And the next thing I realized, I was being offered a job as a young cub reporter. And I started learning a very different kind of way than that was, which was reinforced back at home. I started realizing that if I constructed reality, I could create the emotion that I was looking for. By the way, that's what a lot of news is. If you just look today, it's the construction of reality, which is easy to do in a society of non-thinking people. Amen. On, so Someone needs an amen oh, there. Come <laughs> on, baby. I mean, it was easy. And so you learn taglines, Jeff. Watch this one. Here's one that we used regularly. Uh, the following information may not be suitable for all members of the family. Man, you ain't going no place. You, you, you sitting right there. And so what you would do is you could, you would, you would have different elements of a story. It, it was, uh, it, you know, you always have to have uh, it's somebody's fault and somebody, whether it's an existentialist or not, coming to the rescue. So I had those things for balance, but I knew 
how to create in a way to 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 conjure up the kind of emotional response that was needed. You know, it 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 really didn't I didn't realize the impact that had on me until later in life when I'm playing these roles where I'd rather live in a very shallow impressionistic kind of way. And by the way, I don't blame television. I blame myself. I simply took some of the tools of television and said, hey, this I can escape by being somebody that I'm not. I almost made the fatal mistake of living like that. And that, you know, that that was during a time when I went through the worst days of my life. I it, it could have been very easy to just live an impressionistic, shallow, superficial life, as opposed to reconnecting with the wisdom from my childhood and saying, no, there's gotta be more. I want to make an impact. But television certainly encouraged me to live more of a facade, of a constructed kind of reality. And, you know, I, I'll be honest with you, that's that's why I, I have great compassion for people that I see that are not living up to their means. I don't judge them. I encourage them to break free from the chains and shackles of impressionistic, shallow, superficial living. And it's, a, it's with great joy and a little bit of humor that I try to do that. Right. Well, and I think that what you're getting at is so many of us, you're raised to, you're supposed to, it's, it's a performance-driven culture, right? And so if you learn how to manipulate people and environments, then you can kind of bend things to your will, then you can quote-unquote perform. Right. And, and you think that that's actually leading you to success when all it does is drain you of significance. Hmm. Um, and at some point, everybody finds that place, I think. And then maybe some people don't, but I think at some point people find that place where they feel like I'm just manipulating people for my own purpose, not for my true purpose. I was divinely designed for a true purpose. And you make a comment in your book, Afraid to Hope, that I want you to unpack next. You said, even if you don't know what your purpose is, know this, you're being prepared for your purpose. Yeah. Tell us a little bit, because some people are in that space right now where they feel like they're trying to control their environment, control their image all those things that you fell into the trap, by the way, I did as well. Uh, yeah. and, and what, what does that mean? There were several times in my life where I think I, I would talk to my mom and my dad and I would say, gosh, I just feel like I'm on this shelf. I, I don't feel like I'm doing anything that I was meant to do. You know, I, I'm supposed to be uh, 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 at the network by now. And I just feel like I'm just still covering uh farm stories in an agrarian area. People may not realize that are not from California that most of California is agrarian. Uh, you know, we have the San Joaquin Valley in Central California and the North State from Sacramento North almost to the Oregon border. And so I'm, I'm enjoying what I'm doing, but I just don't feel like I'm progressing. And I can remember my dad saying, son, you're always being prepared. And, 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 and that's what I mean. What I, what I, what I mean is that the, the people will come up to me now and they will say to me, uh, uh, when will my big break come? And I will say that's the wrong question to ask. The right question to ask is, will I be prepared when my break comes? Because you're always being prepared. You don't, you don't see it. You don't sense it. You can't savor it. You can't smell it. But if all you see is what you see, you don't see all there is that needs to be seen. So guess what? 
Back when I was covering those farm stories, I was learning how to speak in simple declarative ways. I was learning how to condense information into story form. I was learning how to speak in a, in a context and an environment with bullets flying overhead or with ambulances passing by. I was learning how to talk to everybody from the janitor to the president of the United States. I was learning, I was being prepared took a third grade dropout daddy and a country mama to help me to see that you're always being prepared if you have a mindset of a winner. If that means that you have a teachable spirit. I love what former basketball coach John Wooden said, live today as though you're going to die tomorrow. Learn today as though you're going to live forever. It's amazing what happens if you're more curious than you are certain. Mm. Wow, I think we should probably just stop now. People, the problem, they're pulling off their cars, they're taking notes now, they're writing notes, it's starting to get real. Have you ever, have you ever, have you ever had a boss that was more, more certain than curious? And what happens is that the entire process is stymied. Entropy sets in. The second law of thermodynamics suggests anything made up of a physical matter is in the process of decay and eventual chaos. I, I want a boss that's curious. I want family members that are curious. I, I, want, I want people around me that haven't lost their startup hunger. I'm asking myself every day, what can I learn? How can I grow? How can I stretch? That's exciting. You, ever, you know, one of, the, one of the worst experiences in the world is to, is to go back to your childhood buddies and they're talking around the clock about what happened 10, 20, 30, in my case, 40, 45 years ago. Yeah, that's, uh, that. unfortunately, probably I, I would think maybe I was a boss like that at one point or two. And I think we have a lot of leaders that listen to the show. And I think sometimes, again, you're, you're taught to believe that you have to have the answers as a leader. So you have to come across as confident and credible when the goal is to be connecting and curious, right? I think. Can I tell you a story about that? Please. You're absolutely right. I, I, it's, I, don't, I don't mean to just hijack your show. It, I mean, it is your show, Jeff. <laughs> but but listen, to, listen to this. The Southern Christian leadership started in the late 1950s. Martin King starts working with Rosa Parks and with Edie Nixon and with Fred Gray, the local attorney, and they come together with a plan for the Montgomery bus boycott. That was December 1955. It was successful. So then they start the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, which the late John Lewis just passed away, uh, was, was part of that, right? So let's fast forward eight years to Birmingham, 1963. Birmingham would be a critical turning point in the civil rights movement. Why? Because there was a court order saying, Martin King, if you and Southern Christian Leadership Conference, if you march, Martin, you're going to jail. The, the, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference is out of money and out of volunteers. And this is what the leader said. Now, remember, he'd been leading this movement for eight years. He says, I don't know what to do. But I can't just do nothing. He goes to jail. He gets arrested. That allowed the more militant factions uh, to, to, to create the most controversial chapter in the history of SDLC. Let's get kids out of school to be the protesters. They'll just be happy to be getting out of school. It would have never happened had King not been in jail, right? And so the pictures that we saw were pictures of innocent school children being hit with fire hose, with, with water from fire hoses and, and, and attacked by police dogs. What's the point? 
It was Andrew Young, who's still alive today, who said the decision to go to jail was the beginning of Martin King's leadership. After eight years, after a comment like, I don't know what to do, I share that with business executives all over the world. That's so powerful. And it was that reaching the end of feeling like he had to have the answers. Yeah. Right. And, and not to say he wasted eight years, because he certainly did not, I'm sure, but to, to really make it an impactful statement and show the people that he was worth following, he had to have the humility to say that and be curious about the, the outcome, right? Um, so we, you talked a little bit about, about mindset. And what I love about in your book with Afraid to Hope is you talk a lot about the valley. Yeah. And in and, and this season right now that we're in, I feel like so many people feel like they're, they're living in a valley. Now, some of it's a little exaggerated. Our valleys are very, in America, our valleys are, are, much, are much less deep than valleys of a lot of people around the world. But I don't, I don't want to minimize, right, the psychological valley that so many people yeah. are finding themselves in. But you, you talk about this idea of the valley and, and circumstances yeah. and how circumstances, when they meet with an individual, never leave them the same. Right. That's right. What does that what does that mean? Unpack that a little further. Sure. Circumstances never leave you the same. They they're either going to leave you better or they're going to cause you to be uh, resentful and mad and irritated and angry and nonproductive. Uh, that thought first occurred to me when I was a younger pastor and I would go visit people at assistant living facilities and I saw two types of people. Uh, the first type uh, represented people that were happy and joyful and thankful and grateful. And then I saw the other type of person. They were irritated, they were mad, they were frustrated, they were angry over what they perceived to be unwarranted, unmerited circumstances and situations in their lives. It caused me to realize that situations never leave you the same. You're either going to make a choice to elevate or you're going to make a choice to go the opposite direction. And then years later, facing that very same situation further cemented that belief that circumstances never leave you the same. I have this quote from Thoreau. He says, if we will be quiet and ready enough, we shall find compensation in every disappointment. The problem is we a lot of times in the midst of a disappointment, we don't take the time to be quiet. We don't take the time to ponder what if, what could be, what might be. That dad of mine, that third grade dropout, he, he was fond of telling me that disappointments are inevitable, but discouragement is a choice, son. Oh, oh baby. Come on now. Somebody better write that down. <laughs> Get my seatbelt, girl. I'm getting ready to blast off. <laughs> <laughs> well, and now how do you feel about, I was talking to my 94 year old grandmother recently. She just turned 94 a couple weeks ago and she's just the matriarch. She's amazing. And, and I said, grandma, have you ever experienced a time period like we're going through this year in your entire life? Yeah. And, and this is someone who was born back around the great depression, right? And lived through all of that all the way up to today. And she said, honestly, I don't think so. Really? And, and she said, I, all the stuff that I've been through, I don't think I've ever seen the world in more turmoil at one time with people at such odds against who they're really designed to be. And, and I thought, wow, if you think about the pandemic and then you think about all the societal unrest, which much of it is, is warranted in some regard and not in other regards. And you think about people's self-preservation all lining up at the same time. And now a presidential election with, with, I don't even want to get into, into some of that. Cause then I got to go repent. Um, <laughs> 
<laughs> but if you think about that, <laughs> Rick, um, what is to like today? It's, it feels like it's so much easier to find people who are complaining or or flame throwing than it is people who are speaking hope and yeah. and, and communicating possibility. What what do you think that is? Yeah, I think we're overwhelmed to be quite honest with you. And we're overwhelmed because of the choices that we choose uh, when it comes to feeding ourselves. It, I would be overwhelmed if all I did was watch the news and read the paper and, 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 and subscribe to certain streams that just constantly tell me the same thing over and over again. It's entirely possible to watch a newscast on Monday, miss Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, and pretty much see the same story on Friday. And so there's this recycling going on in a 24-hour, I got to fill it up news channel that is really disseminating one side. That's why it's important for, for, for leaders to always act with perspective, particularly in a time of uncertainty. Because uh, the, the, the downside is there will be nothing but the burden of despair. And that's too much for us to, uh, to grab hold of. So think about what we're seeing. We're seeing politics play a role, the likes of which we've rarely seen before. I mean, all the way down to a micro level of the constitutionality of wearing a mask or not. You know, when we get to heaven, God's not going to ask us if we wore a mask or if we didn't wear a mask. He's going to ask us if we realized that our neighbor's house was on fire and we took care of them. Come on, y'all. Yeah. And so I, I think that everything seems to be out of whack. If we don't have perspective, we will be left with hopelessness. We really will. I think there's another reason, to, and this may be more profound. I think that um, we have devalued hope. Uh, I wrote this book a couple of years ago that you alluded to called Afraid to Hope. And I would have business leaders, and a couple of them would, would in my opinion, they, 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 they took a jab, and it stung. And this is, was the jab. Hey, Rick, it's a good book, but um, hope's not a strategy. And I would sulk. Hope's not a strategy. I, I, I would get down. Hope's not a strategy. Now, they didn't have the benefit of going through what I went through. That, but I would just hear that from time to time. Do you know it took a pandemic for me to realize they're absolutely right? Hope is not a strategy. Hope is more powerful than a strategy. Mm. A strategy is a plan. You played sports. That plan can adjust and change and shift. It better if you're a good leader, right? Yep. Strategy is a plan. Hope is a belief, mm. a belief that a better outcome is coming. I, I, I've identified hope, and I'm, I'm really trying to answer your question in, in a multiple foci in stereo. <laughs> That's code for I talk way too much. <laughs> I, I've identified hope is that quality within every single one of us that places a transformative demand upon our heart to believe for the absolute best outcome, I want to ask you a question. If all the input we're getting is how devastating, how awful, how ugly, how, how undivided we are, uh, it, it's going to put too much weight on us. And, and then think about this, how we've relegated the word because of its casual use, we've relegated the word hope to the basement of human emotion. We'll say things like, I hope it doesn't rain or I hope I get a parking spot. And those are decent statements. But think about what we've done from a mindset perspective. So here it is stacked. We're getting bombarded with all these negative words and images. And 
we're sensing that we don't have hope, and the word doesn't really conjure up hope. But what if I were to tell you that hope is active, transformative? Would you get on an airplane if you knew that the that the pilot didn't have any hope? Come on now. <laughs> would you would you love it if your spouse said, you know what? I don't have any hope that we can go on. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? Hope is more than just this transient notion of a wish fulfilled. Hope is dynamic. I love Helen Keller. Hope, hope, she said, hope, now this is pretty powerful for anybody, but just imagine the visually impaired saying this, hope sees the invisible, feels the intangible, achieves the impossible. And so guess what, man? I'm sorry. Guess what, Jeff? I almost treated you like family. There. Guess what, Jeff? Companies that two years ago, when the book first came out, that never wanted to talk about hope, all they wanted to talk about were business principles, which I was very thankful for. They've been calling every day saying, Rick, our people need hope. Why? We're bombarded, just like your grandmother said, with all of this, and we turn and look at hope, but hope is nothing but kind of a casual emotion that makes us feel good, or so we think. Yeah, that, that's really powerful because I think what you're saying is uh, and so many people misinterpret or misdefine hope as some just passive emotion that doesn't have any power or activation. Yeah. And what you're saying is, no, it's the opposite. And hope isn't something that you're just wishing for something. Hope is a, is an, is a certain expected outcome that's right. that I know is coming. That's right. And I, and I believe that that is coming. That's what hope is. That's exactly right. Hope is looking out on the horizon and believing yeah. For something that's certain, right? Yes, you're right. And, and think about what hope requires. Hope, hope, requires, hope requires faith. As a matter of fact, you can't have faith unless you have hope. Think about, think about the Holy Scripture for a moment, that, that, that faith is the, is the evidence of things not seen, right? It's the substance of things not seen. You can't have faith unless you first have hope. Hope requires courage. You have to be willing to see what other people don't, right? Hope also requires this, and this may be the most profound. It, it requires a decisive, immediate response. Let me share a, a football story about that. We're playing in a championship game to get to your Buckeyes. <laughs> Come on. I knew that'd keep you awake, brother. <laughs> and so in order to play in the Sugar Bowl, we've got to beat the number one team in the nation in 1998, and that was Kansas State with a hot quarterback named Michael Bishop. They don't even want to be on the same field with the Aggies, and we gave them just cause for that with our miserable first-half first half performance. This was the Big 12 championship game at the then RCA Dome in St. Louis. I think we're down 17-3. to three. And I heard a lot of halftime speeches in my role as chaplain and character coach, but Coach R.C. Slocum gave a powerful one. And he gave it to not just the players, but to every staff member. And, and the, 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 I can't tell you everything that he said, because that, that's family stuff. But, but here are the highlights. I'm expecting a better outcome. In the second half, I have courage to believe it. I have faith to believe it. And I am placing a demand upon each one of my players and staff members. You see, hope requires courage, requires faith. 
and, and, and requires an immediate, decisive response. You know, it, it took execution also. Don't get me wrong. Execution has its place. But that execution was fueled by a new expectation. The end result, 36-33, Texas A&M in double overtime. But I'll tell you that's not nearly as important as what was deposited inside of each one of the players coaches and staff members that night in December in 1998 that you know what I am going to fuel my life is as a matter of fact it is going to to fuel my motivation and my execution and I'm going to fuel it with, with with the gas of hope and 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 it is so profound now that we realize the transformational power of hope I got to calm down. I know this is a, you, you, this is probably a Presbyterian kind of crowd. I need to just calm down a little bit. Yeah, we're more non-denominational. So uh, <laughs> we, uh, <laughs> but I was raised, raised Lutheran. So, oh boy. Um, uh, so, so we, we, that's for another podcast episode. Uh, well, I, I'm inspired. I read the book and, and I think for me, I, I looked at it. I, I'm one of those people, I'll admit that hope was a little fluffy. Sure. That hope was uh, an emotion that I relegated over to that. Hey, you go sit in the corner. I'll tell you when I need you. Um, <laughs> but, but yet I've always been a driver and achiever and a performer. But sure. I think what you're getting me to see is, is that the positivity associated with the expected outcome of hope, hope in and of itself is an optimistic mindset of a positive future. That's, that's it. Right. And I think so many people right now, especially, they're just whether it's because of the quarantine or whether it's just because they feel like the circumstances are completely out of their control, they, they have gotten to the place where they've lost hope. Yeah. Uh, now, why do you think people are sometimes afraid? I mean, it's your book, right? Afraid to hope. Yeah. Why, why, why would someone be actually afraid to hope? Yeah. Uh, we don't, we, we don't see any way out. Okay. It is, it is fear that paralyzes us. It is, uh, Fear that the past may replicate itself again in the future. Can I tell you a story that illustrates that point? I remember the worst day of my life was my first wife's funeral. Mm. If you can imagine, she's 41. She's in a casket. Her husband, myself, and our two little boys are crying. People all around us crying. We can't believe it. We feel like, Jeff, we're in somebody else's nightmare, to be quite honest with you. If people that are listening, if they've lost a child, oh, dear God, if they've lost a spouse, uh, a, a, a close family member, you, you get it, right? Yeah. I looked at my dad, and I said, Dad, I've lost hope. Do you know what he said to me? Son, you haven't lost hope. You can't lose something God gave you. You haven't lost hope. You've lost perspective. Mm, come on. Brother. Come on. <laughs> oh, don't play with me now. Don't. If you want to see a grown man cry, you just stay right there with me for a second. Wow. In one simple declarative statement of wisdom, it nullified my fear. What did you say, Winston Churchill? Fear is a reaction. Courage is a choice. And my father at that casket said, son, let me just remind you of something. Your DNA is hope. Inside of you resides hope. You haven't lost it. You've lost your sense of balance. 
You've allowed the temporary situation of unevenness, of uncertainty, of being bombarded over the last week with nothing but the most horrific news in the world to cause you to seem like you've lost hope. You know, those simple words sustain me for, oh, brother. You know, I want to just talk to your audience for just a second. I know that there are people out there listening that are doing very well, but you might feel like you have lost hope, that there's no reason for which to hope. I talked to a man about a month ago. His company is valued at a billion dollars, and he said he lost 90%. You might feel like you've lost hope. Let me tell you something. I need you to really listen to me. You haven't lost hope. If you're still breathing, <laughs> come on, Ricky. If, you, if you're still functioning, you haven't lost hope. You've lost perspective. Mm. And there is a big difference, Jeff. My goodness. I uh, feel like I'm about ready to jump up and run through this wall right now. Um, <clears throat> I love that. So, so for those of you who are feeling that right now, because I know many are, due to job loss, or maybe you still have your job, but you've been quarantined to your home office for so long, you don't even feel like you have a job anymore. Yeah. Um, and you're trying to work virtually on everything. Wow, what a great concept. You haven't, yeah. you never lose hope. You just lose sight of it. Yeah. And it's always there. It's always in there. It's always part of your DNA. And all you got to do is switch that mindset, throw that switch, and recognize that, that faith and hope are interconnected, but hope comes before faith, and then faith helps you overcome the fear. Wow. You know, you, you know, brother, I, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say this, but I hope I hope in saying it and I help somebody. I, I used to think that people that um, that got depressed had just had weak minds. And I used to think that people that contemplated suicide just had weak minds. And then all of a sudden I was depressed and all of a sudden I contemplated suicide. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know what would have happened had it not been for a praying mom a praying dad, and two little boys that, that needed me. I, I don't even want to think of what would have happened, right? And, and here, here, here's my point. My point is that life can get so bad that you can see no way out. And that's exactly how I felt for months. I didn't see any way out. From, from Coco around the campfire with, with mom and the boys, all the way to somehow being able to, to, to go into a boardroom with confidence. I didn't see any way. My life was over. What that third grade dropout said to me, he said two things profound. He said, you haven't lost hope. You've lost perspective. And then he said, son, just stand. I realized at some point that the people who remain depressed make a choice to remain depressed because they don't want to fight anymore. Mm. I was depressed for a long time. I realized the people that contemplate suicide make a choice to contemplate suicide because they don't see any other option. I don't know where I'd be today or even if I'd be here today. Rick, aren't you a pastor? Yeah, but I'm a human being. I don't know where I'd be today. Had I not had a third grade dropout daddy say, you have a choice, son. You have a choice. Look around this room. You have a choice. I just want to be an encouragement to somebody that you have a friend in me. If, if, if you're depressed, you have a friend in me. If you're contemplating ending your life, I will say don't. 
the fact that you woke up this morning and are listening to this podcast is evidence to me that hope at some level is still working in your life. I know that's probably meant for someone specifically out there listening today. And I know this, the, the environment we're in is causing a lot of pain and hurt and heartache for a lot of people. But just like the valley that Rick was in for such a long time after Trina passed, um, had he stayed in the valley, um, he would have never been able to, to, to reach his potential. And he's still reaching it, by the way, just as I am, just as you are listening. But because he chose hope, ultimately, hope yeah. always wins, right? Because That's exactly right. he chose that path. So whoever's listening out there needs to hear that message today. Um, I encourage you to go seek out someone in your life. Yeah. Who you think is actually pursuing hope and they will speak life to you right now in a moment when you need to hear it the most. Yeah. And uh, I was going to ask you the last question was what, what powerful thing can you communicate to our audience about what they need to hear today around hope, but you just went ahead and did it without me even prompting you to do it. So, <laughs> oh my goodness. So, so, so Rick, I, I, I would love to do this for hours upon hours. I want to honor your time and I, and I want to, point people to some places where they can learn more about you. Please, uh, the audience, go to rickrigsby.com. Yeah. Uh, please read both of his books. Go to YouTube, watch the lessons of a third grade dropout video. It's powerful. If you don't, if it, uh, here's what I used to say, if it doesn't light your fire, your wood's wet. Um, <laughs> and, uh, go and listen to his new podcast, How You Live In. Yeah. Uh, if you want a burst of inspiration, uh, go listen to Rick on a regular basis because he cares He's the real deal. And I can tell you that he believes, as I do, that you have a purpose and you're supposed to continue to walk that path towards it and, and be hopeful in doing so. So, Rick, any, any final parting shots or stories? To all the business leaders trying to figure it out in, in, in a time of uncertainty, make sure that we act with perspective, that we speak with clarity, that we listen with caution, and that we model hope. Amen. Amen. Well, Rick, I can't thank you enough for being on. Um, you are just amazing. And my audience, I know, is going to rave, uh, have rave reviews about this episode. So thank you again. It's, it's been our honor to have you on. Oh, Jeff, what a privilege. Thank you so much. Please invite me again. I'll, I promise to keep my answers shorter. <laughs> <laughs> I don't believe you, but I'll have you on again. <laughs> thank you. Have a good day. Hey friends, this is Jim Knight, former 21-year Hard Rock executive turned best-selling author and top 10 keynote speaker. And I'm Brant Menzoir, former frontman of Hollywood's most dangerous band turned top 10 motivational speaker and best-selling author. We host the how-to podcast, Thoughts That Rock, where we talk to rock stars, athletes, CEOs, astronauts, and even next door neighbors who share their expertise and opinions. Together, we tackle the most interesting and challenging topics of today. Whether you want to learn how to become more confident, how to deal with anxiety at work, or how to write a hit song, or use Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in life, we've got hundreds of episodes to help amp up your life and move you forward. Subscribe to Thoughts That Rock wherever you listen to podcasts, and check out evergreenpodcast.com for more information.